Hello, thanks for joining us. It's NG Meets, and this episode is episode 20. And to mark that, what a show we've got with you today. Because on this week's episode, we have Olympic gold medal winner Etienne Stott joining us. Uh, for those that don't know, Etienne won the Olympic gold in London 2012 with his partner Tim Bailey in the uh, canoe slalom. Fantastic achievement. Obviously, London 2012 was such a huge event. And we had a bit of a chat about that. That's towards the end of the show. Most of the episode was talking about what Etienne is involved with now, which is, of course, Extinction Rebellion. He's a big part of that organisation. And we had a chat about the recent uh, uprising in London that I'm sure you heard all about. It gathered a lot of press and a lot of attention. Obviously, not all of it favourably. And we talk a bit about that. We talk a bit about the police reaction and of course we know recently they lost the court case about their attempts to ban the protests. Uh, We also generally talk about why Extinction Rebellion is so important, why tackling climate change is so important and the kind of hopes we have moving forward in particular from the younger people. So it was great to have a chat with Etienne. He had some brilliant things to say and it was great to chat to him and as you may remember a few weeks ago we spoke to uh, Sam Harris of Extinction Rebellion Nottingham. So this follows on nicely from that. If you haven't heard that episode, I suggest you check that out. That was episode 16. And uh, you can check that out along with all episodes of NG Meets at ngdigital.podbean.com. And of course, it's available on iTunes, Podcast Addict and uh, most other podcast apps, whatever it is you're using. So, as I say, this episode, it was, uh, it's, it is, sorry, NG Me's episode 20 with Etienne Stott. today with Etienne Stott who is um, amongst other things an Olympic gold medal winning athlete and now a member of Extinction Rebellion and campaigner and also as of sort of recently podcast presenter (laughs) by myself so thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for letting me be here it's really nice. No worries. Um, To start with obviously while we're, as we're recording this today, um, obviously it won't be when it goes out, but it, I noticed on Twitter it's actually the first birthday today of mm. Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, I saw a tweet you you put up yourself. So uh, it's staggering how quickly that's gone, actually. Yes, about it. it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember watching, so today is the first anniversary of the, what's called the Declaration of Rebellion. So that's when they went to Parliament Square yeah. and they read out their their, mean, their intention to say they were going to rebel against the government. Um, and I watched that on Facebook. My Oh, I think, I can't remember what it was, I must have been doing my Open University at the time. And my friend from Sweden, who is a, a former paddler, who kind of, he knows Greta as well, which is even more awesome. He said, oh mate, watch this, check this out on the internet because he knew that I'd been interested in environmental stuff, and I'd sort of just started coming across it. And then this uh, this thing, Extinction Rebellion, came on, and we were like, oh, man, this is 
this is cool, you know? And then that was really the start for me, I suppose, of that part of it. But it is astonishing. One year, we've achieved a huge amount and it's grown, you know? It's worldwide in the last, you know, the rebellion just, just finished now. The autumn uprising started, you know, I think it was in 70 countries. Uh, yeah. That's one year, one year ago. So, wow, it's, it's amazing to think of it. It is incredible. I mean, and it, like you say, it started from sort of a group, you know, just going down into London and mm. the sort of the, the takeover as they did yeah. then and exploded. I mean, there's obviously there's sort of Extinction Rebellion groups all over the country. Mm. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Sam from Extinction Rebellion Nottingham, yes. Sam Harris on, yeah, yeah. talking about He's how a top he got man. Good lad. Yeah, good guy. Really good and, guy. Uh, and, it's, and that's... And you're talking about sort of this great thing about it as well, I think, is the sort of mixture of people it's pulled in. Mm. I mean, because I think growing up when I did, it was always, environmentalism was always it sort of tacked onto what they called tree huggers, mm. as it was, you know, the sort of hippie yeah. type. But now, I mean, it's people from all walks of life are really waking yeah. up to the... Uh, <laughs> waking up to the impending catastrophe well yeah. not, not even impending it's yeah. happening isn't it yeah I mean I think that's a really interesting point that you're making now I suppose I, I was reflecting on this the other day and it's strange I'd not really thought about it before but you know people say you know we're criticised as being like you know what was the word um, uncooperative crusties yeah. um, which is uh, not true and then it's the other side is oh, just white middle class which is also not true. It's kind of there's a broad section of people in between and from all sorts of walks of life, you know, and I think just my experiences in Extinction Rebellion, Nottingham alone, you know, we've got people from all sorts and there are people who are probably, you know, old school environmental activists who've been been around and done that. But we've got people from before that, you know, from Greenham Common, you know, from anti-apartheid movements, you know, got against the poll tax. And then we've got young people who are just, you know, just switching onto it. And you've got people like me who are, kind of, well, I'm 40 years old, I've done a whole other thing and I've suddenly come to this, uh, well, suddenly, more or less suddenly come to this and arrived and found, wow, this is really important. This is exactly the right thing we need. And it's bringing in people from all different walks of life. And I think that's fascinating, although I think the criticisms are, are, are probably right. We do need to do more work and, and engage more you know, community, more diverse communities, particularly black and ethnic minority communities. I think that's Fair enough, but also it's like, well, we're only a year old, you know. We're really just getting started, so there's so much to there's so much to do and, and, and so much progress being made already. I think so, and it, and it was such a fast moving sort of initiative, and as you said, I mean, like we said, as of today while we're recording this, it's only been a year, mm. and it's staggering to think how much has been done. And I mean, you only have to look, for example, on the, the Nottingham Extinction Rebellion page to see how many events mm. they do in terms of new member events, family events, mm. um, events for, you know, people that want to get involved in the, you know, the, the full-on yeah. campaigns, protests. There's even advice in terms of the, mm. you know, what happens if you're arrested, yeah, things yeah. like that. And as you say, it's been so fast that there hasn't really been a time, I guess, yet to to take that sort of step back and say, yeah. okay, what do we need to do mm. now? And I think that possibly played into obviously this this year's rebellion. Yeah. They were definitely, I think you yourself uh, 
commented it, there were certain things that didn't necessarily help the cause, but in particular, yeah. obviously, the, the tube station mm. incident, yeah. but, which, unfortunately, I think the problem there is it was one small incident, but it played into the hands of what is essentially a hostile media attitude yeah. towards... Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so much interest in there for you to pick up on. I, I think that, first of all, I'd say one of the things that, that, that really strikes me is we can't... I mean, there's been two kind of rebellion periods, you know, since we started. So there was, um, well, I suppose there's been three. There was shortly after the declaration this time last year, there was a first action in yeah. London, which was the Five Bridges, which was, you know, kind of a bit of a tester of the model, I suppose. And then there was the April uh, rebellion, which was incredible, you know, and it, it finished. And I think that surpassed people's expectations, um, perhaps even their wildest expectations, that it would be so successful, so well received, and so um, so incredibly uh, uplifting and, and hopeful, I think. Although we've got to remember, you know, at that time, there was still a huge amount of dis dispute and, uh, you know, there was a lot of negative press about it at that point. But it was still, um, by the end of the time, it was being kind of hailed as a, as a success and that it was being understood as, a, as, a, as an important thing. Whether this time round, I think it's been... Um, uh, you know, whole, you know, there's been a whole cycle of, of growth, more people coming in, and I think it's made it. Um, and I think the media now have been prepared, the critics have been prepared for what they wanted to say. Um, and I think that that has made it really um, interesting in terms of, yeah, what, what we managed to get across. The police tactics were very different, and also it was also um, an interesting situation insofar as the dis political time in our country's existence. I thought there was a huge opportunity to contrast Extinction Rebellion's vision of the future and its idea to go beyond politics with the National Citizens Assembly with their absolute impasse, logjam, you know, whatever word you want to describe of, of what is going on in our parliament up until now. And, and perhaps there's a bit of movement right now, but we're still not yet to see how that fully develops. And I suppose looking back at this period, perhaps in five or 10 years time, you know, this rebellion in, in October, 2019, perhaps we'll see what it really meant, what it, what it, what it created. And I think as well, the tube action will also be reflected upon at length and, and is being reflected upon at length on what significance that plays will also be, be kind of clear in, in, as we look back for, from further away. Definitely. And I think, like you say, I think part of the issue there, like you say, the the initial rebellion event and maybe even the April one, mm. there was no time for those um, critical or against it to mm. to prepare. Yeah. Like you said, be, yeah, they've yeah. since then, they've had, you know, I think it was well known there was going to be one on the, you know, a year later. Mm. They've had time to set an agenda plan and clearly, or it clearly feels like, pressure was definitely placed on mm. high on the, the police to yeah. take what at certain points seemed appalling tactics. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think that, so that's one of the amazing things. Uh, it, won't, it won't come as a surprise to your listeners and perhaps to you that I'm a you know big advocate of Extinction Rebellion. It's extremely well thought out, you know. So when it appeared a year ago, <clears throat> I think it was actually the product of a huge amount of preparation work, you know, because it kind of arrived in this amazing, almost kind of formed way um, with, you know, this, you know, these structures and the systems and the training, 
kind of setups kind of already you know in their in their in a formed way um but now you know again a year on it's like it's still growing it's still developing but it you know when when you're talking about the relationship with the, the police that's a really fascinating thing that i think we're all considering as well at the moment i think the and my experiences with the police <clears throat> have, have always been really respectful polite calm and peaceful and, and i thought that was amazing thing about the april uh, rebellion for me that's my really you know that was the first well it was the second time i've really been encountering the police in this way but the this time round i think a lot of people in Extinction Rebellion started to realise we hear these voices that were saying actually, you know, the, the, the encounters with the police by different members of the, uh, you know, the community might not always be that way. Um, so I think that's something I have to still think about and, and make sense of in my own mind because my experiences have been positive. But then I am a, a, a white, uh, I don't know what class I am, somewhere between working class and middle class maybe I don't know what that means um, but you know I'm in a particular privilege of my my situation and I think that's important you know and, and again Extinction Rebellion is really committed to recognizing that trying to recognize it as best as possible and I think the other thing worth pointing out in, in your in your kind of talk just then was that actually another thing that's built into Extinction Rebellion is this idea that we have to regenerate and learn after each uh, cycle or, or, or after each action so this idea of reflection and learning is really built very strongly into it so there's a kind of a bit of a shutdown period where people yeah. can relax get their heads on you know kind of get back to an even keel and we then look inside ourselves look inside ourselves as a movement look outside and try and take stock and learn and evolve. And I suppose this relates to my learnings as an athlete as well. You never really know what's positive and what's negative until you've processed it, drawn lessons out of it, use those lessons, and then you know whether the lessons were good or not, whether the experience was a was a you know useful one, I suppose. Yeah, I mean you can you, you can only hindsight effectively as they always mm. say, um cliche, but it is a wonderful thing to have. Mm. And it's and it is i mean it it was huge a huge movement probably you know i think everyone knew it was going to be big but it mm. was probably even bigger than mm. anyone expected and that is always going to to lead to all sorts of things happening yeah. i mean i personally i thought you know from following it i thought it was fantastic mm. not everything you know you're never going to get everything mm. right yeah um but it certainly, I think, it it did what it needed to do, and that's to keep this yeah. debate going and highlight it, especially at a time when one particular political storyline, you mm. know, if you want to call it that, is making it difficult for anything else to get yeah, absolutely. A, a spotlight yeah. for even if for that short period, and you know. The the, cli the climate crisis environment was on the front pages yeah. of the paper. What else is making the front pages of the paper yeah. at this in over the last couple of yeah. years? And I think that's I think that's one of the things that you know. Again, we're into this kind of difficult territory. For example, looking at the the, the tube action, um, I think that was um, my 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 guess or my suspicion would be that that action was born out of desperation. That we're in an emergency situation that the campaigns 
you know are they are they getting traction are they getting the the space the column inches the attention of the public that they deserve and let's be honest they deserve it because these are an existential threat and i suppose when people start to think that their voices are not being heard you know you get people acting in ways that are potentially unpredictable you know and that's the, again one of the amazing things about extinction rebellion is it's decentralized so groups have got the power to act autonomously provided they act within the principles um, and this group were doing were doing so but they their their intentions were i think fairly clear and i think it was incredible to to see this kind of descent into violence that we witnessed yeah um because of a very you know which is a significant disruption but let's just say it was half an hour or something like that and, and there may be more knock-on consequences I, I can't presume to know all them but i think a lot of people were saying well look you know what happens when the food starts to get really expensive or starts to run out on our shelves you know where what happens um when our water supply is not constant anymore and we can't take that for granted you're going to see friction you're going to see social breakdown you're going to see these ugly scenes potentially and i think that's certainly what motivates me uh i see the environmental and ecological crisis kind of cast the cascading effects of that essentially turning our society into a really un unhappy sad dangerous and unpleasant place and that's where i don't want to live and in fact i don't want the people i care about to live there and i don't want the children who i know of my friends i don't have children of my own but i don't want to see my ch you know, those children having to behave or being victims of behavior when people are just trying to survive that is what terrifies me that that vision of a really unhappy you know really difficult future and i think the the action on the tube i suppose it did it, it blasted the doors into the you know to get on the news perhaps for the wrong reasons but actually it put it into the eyes and that's one of the i suppose one of the ideas about some of this disruptive action is it's to get attention and at the end of the day, some people will have a, a, an opinion. Well, it's designed to make an opinion. Yeah. And then people will be like, okay, some people will be disrupted and, and perhaps they will be never forgiving Extinction Rebellion. Uh, but perhaps some of these people will go home and go, actually, yeah, these people have got a point. Or perhaps they'll think to themselves, actually, yeah, this, was, this is important because when they really consider the disruption that we're trying to present, prevent, then this will be seen against in that context. And I think, you know, let's just say, I don't know, I saw it today, the, the California wildfires, you know, this again is these consequences, this disruption writ large on a small scale, yeah. let's say. And this is this is what we're having to try to avoid. And if it takes, you know, grasping the, the bull by its horns and making these huge um, loud noises then I think, you know, I can understand that. We've got to be careful about how we do it. We don't want to, I think it, in, in lots of ways, we'll not be able to judge the effect of the of that tube action for a, a little while longer, but it creates engagement. And I suppose Extinction Rebellion, you know, is is, a, is is trying to create engagement. I think, and, and arguably, I say, I think, the, you know, the whole point of disruption is to disrupt mm. protest. I mean, I've seen people say oh you know i fully support the protest but can't they do it on a saturday or can't they do it out the way them and it's kind of like mm. you, that's missing the kind yeah. that's kind of missing the point of a protest that's yeah. like saying telling teachers to only go on strike in the holidays mm. if you don't impact make an impact 
people will ignore it. Mm. If your protest is just walking through a, a park, and there, you know, there's yeah. marches are valid at certain, you know, for various mm. reasons. But if you want to be heard, then you've got to make a nuisance of yourself yeah. to be heard. This then that's not a new thing. That goes back to, you know, yeah. that's how change gets enacted all over the world. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I, I think that you know, I suppose it, it escalates. You know, in some parts of the world, you don't need to do very much. Uh, you know, in some places, you, you have to be incredibly brave just of to course, stand out yeah. on the street. Um, but I suppose what's interesting, and I think one of the tasks that Extinction Rebellion have to to do better at or you know to improve i mean there's you know in this situation you can improve everything but i think you know to explain to people this this theory of change that we have which is saying actually yes um this disruption is part it's not disruption for disruption's sake it's part of a theory it's part of a, a line of historical evidence that suggests this is actually the most effective way of creating the social changes that we need if there was a more effective way and i say this to lots of people believe me it's not um it's challenging to be out on a, on a roadblock or to be a part of disruption because some people can can be very angry you know and, and you can see exactly where they're coming from um but the reason we're doing it is because of this you know motivated by this purpose that we have to prevent this monstrosity you know this catastrophic disruption so if we can explain to people you know if people grasp that you know and that's why the extinction rebellion's first demand the truth we've got to tell the truth because once you understand the danger we're in the difficulties that we're facing and the lack of action to address it a lot more becomes understandable but until you do not until you understand this urgency the seriousness then actually it can seem a little bit like why are these people doing this why are they doing that what are they doing this for what are they doing that for it doesn't make sense unless you realize this is an emergency people are tearing their hair out because we need to wake people up we need to get people out of this burning building we need to get you know the water onto it and people are just you know asleep basically and that is that's kind of scary and people here you know we're you know we're motivated by care and duty to the public um actually at the bottom line this is what it's about and and at, and, and now we're in this point where, you know, it's difficult to wake people up. It's difficult to get the government to act in this gentle way. We've done the petitions, we've done the marches, you know, and they don't seem, well, they don't, they have not worked. Manifestly, they have not worked because we've not reduced um, meaningfully our emissions. Um, species loss continues to, to accelerate, if anything, and, and therefore we have to ask what will work. And I am absolutely committed to non-violence you know it's proven again to work better than and than violent uh, campaigns um and i think that you know people realize that it also wins the peace it means that the, the the once the the campaign is finished you do not have this residual you know vendettas and and, and horrible um you know debts to be repaid if you're peaceful non-violent it can actually work so much better and so i'm convinced we have to act like this but we do have to act and that you know for me this is what's really cool about extinction rebellion they've got a clear idea it's just that not everyone may understand that at this point we have to do better at that but also hopefully it will work even if people don't understand because it creates this engagement with the issue um people kind of forced to have an opinion or, or well not forced they are they're compelled, I suppose, to to find an opinion within themselves, and then once you start that, then you can then you can move with that. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, people have different opinions. You don't even have to agree mm. with what Extinction Rebellion are doing. Mm. 
to you, agree with the might, issue exactly yeah, and yes. it, but it might still make you you know you might it might make you angry what's happening the, mm. you know particularly if you're caught up in it i mean it's mm. kind of easy for me to sit here you know um, 200 miles away mm. from london who wasn't you know cycles to work and wasn't affected yeah. by it but even if you're angry maybe take that anger yeah. and use it and have a look at why yeah. people feel this need because mm. as you say there's pe- these the people are that are going down and get involved they're, they're risking you know anger violence mm. potential arrest they're taking time you know people are taking time off work and yeah. they're not doing that because they want to you know annoy no, just, people yeah, they're yeah. doing that because this is yeah. you know this is the issue of yeah. our ages yeah well this is it yeah i mean you know i say to people you know this is the issue upon which all issues depend you know we can't have uh, brexit on a dead planet we can't have um you know uh, i think i think anything you know um every you know and and i suppose that's the thing here we've got to remember you know is that this engagement part that we sort of touched on earlier vulnerable communities are the first people to suffer when we're gonna when we're gonna start to see these strain and these stresses on our social systems and so actually it's about really being very explicit again it's telling the truth to the communities that perhaps are disengaged and the the most vulnerable people it is actually they will be affected soonest and first and of course they're being affected in this way around the world already in, in more in more vulnerable places but once people start to understand this is a scandal at the bottom line, this is a scandal. There is a scandal because there is something very, very terrible happening that people are not being told the truth about. And when the penny drops, that will change massively. You know, it will flip perhaps even overnight. And I suppose that's what, you know, I heard this fantastic analogy the other day. Someone was saying, you know, it will be a little bit like when you put a bottle of water in the freezer. You know, it's liquid, it's watery, it's watery, it's watery. And then all of a sudden it freezes yeah. and then the bottle bursts. Um, because and I, and I think we've already seen that with the success of Extinction Rebellion is there's a latent understanding to some degree of the danger that global warming poses and that's why a lot of people have supported Extinction Rebellion if not joined but I think there's a whole you know wave of other people who are disengaged and who perhaps have no connection to you know the extinction uh, crisis and, and, and the global climate change crisis but once they do get it then they're going to be they're going to realize it affects them they're going to be angry and the people who are also learning about it once they really get it's not just you know in 50 years time it's not just in a a generation's time it's going to be on our doorstep within i i believe my guess is within about 15 years it will be clearly we we will be affecting our lives in this country very manifestly, very directly, and of course it's affecting people's lives around the world already. But it's not something that's going to happen in an abstract sense, and it's not going to be deferred. I think, and once people, if we, that's kind of what we want people to understand. And once they understand that, I think it becomes more real. And once it becomes more real, people, I believe, will act. I don't believe that once people know the truth, they will just stand back and let it happen. I actually choose to believe that people will. One foot will follow another once they realise there's a danger and once there's this pathway given to them. I think it's really important to say that, yeah, once people, you know, some people say you shouldn't scare people, you know, we shouldn't kind of be all doom and gloom. 
And it's not doom and gloom if you offer a strategy and a pathway out of that doom and gloom. It is wrong to just say it's doom and gloom. That's it. It's yeah. over. Just suffer it. Actually, this is saying we've got some really bad problems coming down the line. We can't we can't soft pedal that. But there is something you can do. And that at this point in time looks to be, you know, massive pressure on, on our leaders and governments to, to change their to change their angle. And I think if enough people in the public get that, I think some people in the government and authorities already do get that. And they actually just need a little bit more support from the public to be able to start having these, you know, to start enacting the policies that we need to, to have. For example, the third runway or HS2, you know, the environmental impact of these things, people are starting to work. Mm. And I think the government perhaps already realised they, they don't really match and they're probably looking for ways to, to kind of slide out of them. I hope they are anyway. Minister, mm. I think the, I think he still will be while this when this goes out. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows, man? Um, it should go out before the election. But I mean, he was dead against the mm. third one way when he was mayor mm. of London, and he was quite, yeah. you know, he was outspoken, big on sure, yeah, and he was you know quite big on the bikes, mm. you know, and quite good at taking credit for the bits of that that he didn't yeah. have a thing, but he always has. But you know, as as is often the way in politics, and this is part of the problem, one, that politics is entirely based on um, short cycles because mm. they're only thinking to the next election. Yeah, absolutely. But also, they, as he did, he, he changed his mind when it suited his, mm. what his, his political needs. Yeah. And that's been a constant problem, I think. But as you say, um, hopefully we're seeing more among... We're definitely seeing, it appears seeing much more from uh, the Labour Party in mm. terms of supporting the Green Deal. I mean, it's interesting seeing what's happening in America with... Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, I can't got remember the name, but the green, yeah. the green New Deal there from the, the sort of the new the yeah. new Democrat yeah, yeah. people that are coming through. Um, there's a long way to go to win mm. enough people, particularly mm. in, a, in America where, you know, it's massively even more so than here the power yeah. and the but the yeah. boss are the power of the lobby groups in yes, America yes, and, of course, you know yeah. the power of big mm. big oil and things like that mm. over there is going to take a long time but i think it does feel and i'm and extinction rebellion i think i've had a part of this narrative thought even the media that haven't been overly supportive of the campaign the the events the way they are reporting about climate change certainly feels more that they are reporting it as an issue. Mm. We're not getting so much. And, you know, one of the big problems I always thought was take, for example, the BBC. Mm. Whenever they did anything about climate change, they would get a scientist on, an expert, yeah. and they would always get a yes. denier on, which mm. gave the impression that this was a sort of 50-50 debate, yeah. despite the fact that... Absolutely. 97% of scientists mm. have, are outspoken, you know, have, have said this is an issue, but that's this desperation to appear impartial yeah. was giving away a message that this was still 
open for debate mm. there's still just opinions almost i still think there's a huge way to go though i mean there was a protest in in the recent uprising in london against the bbc um at the bbc broadcasting house you know and and i think the bbc have got a far larger role to play i think all our media have uh, i think there's still really contradictory messages going out so you might have a program or you may have the odd headline about uh, you know um the global climate emergency and, and species extinction uh, emergency but i think you know you, and then you have the next thing like you know a, a documentary about amazing lifestyles of the rich and the famous or global travel programs you know which don't mention the impacts of these things or you have like you know mentions of i don't know um uh, you know I still think they could be more explicit about saying the disruption that we're seeing or these freak weather events and these uh, you know catastrophes that are happening all around the world. I, I read something the United Nations said is apparently one um, environmental kind of disaster happening per week, you know, so something connected to you know extreme weather or, or climate change or species loss, something happening once a week around the world. But we're not really hearing that. So we're still seeing this very slim picture of, of actually what's happening. I think the BBC have to do far better. I think all our media have to... So actually, when I speak to journalists, a lot of journalists get this. But there's still the kind of... I suspect there's still the kind of pressure on the status quo at an editorial level, perhaps. I don't actually know. But I just think they, they could be doing a lot better. Um, and this is absolutely crucial because, you know, I, I guess once people know... As I say, I think the truth is so important to, and then that will get people moving on their own. And I think the BBC as a well-respected and also as a global kind of producer of trusted content, they got to get on this, you know, and, and it's kind of like they've got this massive role to play. I definitely feel like you're right. I think you're right. And I, I definitely think they're certainly not, um, I think, reporting on how bad it's couldn't be, it could mm. be. But I do think it does feel like we've what was happening for a long time, we've moved away now oh, 100%, yeah. from the the idea that we've it's fully accepted it's climate yeah. change is happening. But I think it seems that the media, even the host, more hostile side of the media, seem to have finally as well accepted the fact that uh, that we've played a role in this. Yeah, which yeah. was for a long time I remember was being battered back against mm. oh, it yeah. it's just you know constantly you would get this idea that's just the natural cycle yeah. look at the ice age yeah. etc obviously this isn't helped by the person in the white house mm. who still tweets out things when it snows like oh look so much for global warming yeah. which i mean that's the kind of thing a six-year-old child i guess a bit insulting to my six-year-old child yeah, yeah. but in general <laughs> I know it's hard to say in general when that's mm. arguably the most powerful person in the world. Mm. But the overall narrative does seem to have finally... And now it's become an argument about, one, how bad it's going to be. And there yeah. are some, some that are still, like you say, <clears throat> there are some that don't want to accept that this is happening now. Yeah. And also, there is even, there's even an argument, some now are almost saying... We've done it now. Mm. We can't do anything. About it. I think you said that. Yeah. There are There is a section and... Saying, well, we might as well just carry on as we are because it's too late. Yeah. It's... Well, I think there's this interesting thing what you're saying there. I think there's, um, I think that in my perception, it's almost like this idea of a, 
of a of a climate emergency that word that phrase has kind of just over overwritten global warming as a sort yes. of word that we use and i think that is what is not being communicated effectively so i think richard attenborough said you know we're talking about the collapse of civilization and but what does that mean you know what does that actually mean it's easy to say and when is that going to happen that is their two critical facts you can say that but actually what does that mean and the reality of those things and the and the in the closeness of those things switches the gears quite significantly and i, I do think the public by and large don't get that um, and i don't think the media get that because if they did again the truth would change that very quickly because you would start to see very very quickly this debate running from you know there's a you know oh it's going to cost x and y or these people are you know uncooperative crusties or white middle class they'd be that would all be let's you know let's get to the solutions let's get working on this and i think that is what's not happening and that needs to happen very very clearly yeah i do think i think if you spoke to most people they would while they would accept that climate change is an issue i think they would probably think that it's a long way off mm, still yeah, as you say yeah and, and i think that's 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 understandable in a way because it doesn't you know it doesn't looking outside you know and i, I get this when I, I i just rode up through town here you know people are going about their shopping everything looks fine you know and that's what's scary is that it's this kind of world where this is not really reality it's this kind of myth um it's kind of like a, a it's real as, as much as it is now but it cannot last and that is scary and now we, we have to negotiate that we have to actually really get that through because, um, and, and, and like I say, I suppose the government and maybe, you know, the authorities don't want to panic people. But again, I don't think they said this, you know, in the, in the last years before World War Two. you know, I don't think they were kind of saying, oh, you know, let's not talk about Adolf Hitler and the, the rise of Nazism in Europe. You know, I think they were like, we're going to have to talk about this honestly at some point. And, and probably in governments, they were probably talking about it, honestly, quite a few years beforehand. I just think that now we are in this status where, you know, this is an existential threat for all of us. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, who you are, left wing, right wing, rich, poor, and everything in between. And this is going to affect you. And once that, once that changes, that's what gives me great hope, because you can, this, this everybody has got a stake in here. And once people get that, it will mean that we can, I actually think it will bring us together, kind of unify all of these things behind this idea that we must survive, because I think that people will realise that, although I, you know, I am also equally terrified that we will be bickering and, and wondering whether the Green New Deal is good or whether we should have more nuclear power stations or this, that and the other, we'll be meandering around while we you know while we actually should be acting yeah and that gives me i suppose you know at some point maybe we can talk about the the citizens assemblies because i think that's one of the, the great hopes for, for me as well definitely they're they're an interesting idea that i didn't really know anything about mm. until i was sort of looking into extinction rebellion because obviously that's one of the three well, demands, yes, your the demands, demands. Yeah, yeah, yeah your yeah. demand which is to establish citizens assembly which i think is a a fantastic idea mm. but um for those obviously i say i didn't know anything about it yeah. i'm sure there's probably quite a lot of people listening that don't so yeah. did you want to just sort Absolutely, of yeah. explain what what a citizens assembly is and how you think that can play such yeah. a key role so citizens assemblies i think are the are the 
most hopeful and most amazing and perhaps most inspiring of the demand well i think they're all very inspiring they're all equally necessary but citizens assembly is basically um, where you select at random from the population of the country a, a group of people um, and you select like a jury service it's just selected yeah. completely randomly from the whole population and then you have a process called sortition um, which is basically to try and make sure that you're representing with that random selection it's kind of whittled down a bit to make sure you're representing in some proportion the all the different sort of groups the the, the you know the larger you know the, the sorry not the larger groups the sort of coarser groups that you would see in the in in the in a kind of cross section of society and then what you do is you you get these people into a room and they normally my understanding you get them in like sort of groups of 10 or something like that 10 or 12 people around the table and they hear evidence from um, people who've got a connection to the to the issue so um, they would be experts and you know scientists and, and people with the interest in the issue they would make their case effectively it's very similar to a jury they make their case and uh, the these the citizens who've been selected they they listen and then they get the chance to ask questions and, and perhaps even you know they they can ask people to return they can also ask for specific people to come and give evidence and then they do this this part of it, which is where it gets its name, the deliberative part. That's where you deliberate as a group. And so each of the tables of these groups has a person and a facilitator who has got no stake in the game or who, who deliberately, you know, takes their stake away out of the situation and just basically makes sure that each voice on the table gets to be heard and make sure the discussion is balanced and kind of focused. So they are facilitators. They are basically there to kind of make sure that the, the discussion stays on track and then you know they get the they have these deliberations and then ideas you know solutions come out of it and and then they get collected together with all the other groups and then perhaps there's another round of questions and and questioning and more experts and more more interesting people come to speak and it basically builds up this thing and i suppose at this point we have a kind of a representative democracy which is re really a democracy based on public opinion you know, and you get slogans and you get massive oversimplification of, of complex issues, which you could argue is why we're in a bit of a pickle as we are now. But this Citizens' Assembly is called Deliberative Democracy, where it's public knowledge, public information, public, you know, an informed public makes decisions. And critically, what's really important is that the government who instigates the Citizens' Assembly says they will abide by their findings. And that really is important then because it gives... The, the the recommendations or the policies brought out by the Citizens' Assembly are legitimacy because the individuals who have been selected um, by this random process are, don't have to get elected in five years' time. Um, they, don't, they, can, they can make decisions that perhaps are longer term, perhaps they may even be unpopular, um, but because these people are actually representative, they can't be accused of having vested interest or if they have got interest, they will hopefully have been balanced out by other interest in that in that group, and I think the that's the really amazing power, and and, and citizens assemblies have been used, actually they they're actually quite common, um, in different different areas. But one of the most powerful ones that I always cite the example of is in Ireland, they formed a citizens assembly to discuss and deliberate whether they should have the referendum abortion. So on such a toxic issue in Ireland, such a politically divisive issue, it was actually 
completely toxic for any politicians to even go near this question to discuss it. They would just lose or gain, you know, too much. It would be too messed up. So basically, they get a citizens' assembly almost kind of outsource this, this, these really you know, difficult decisions. Um, and in Ireland, they, you know, this this process came to the conclusion that they should have a, 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 a referendum on abortion. And I think that's the really the key strength of citizens' assembly. They have a legitimacy because they're people, they're actual normal people. They are less um, kind of corrupted by the vested interests and by lobbying and all that sort of thing. And also they're not uh, bound by short-termism um, and these sorts of um, really you know, constraining kind of electoral cycles. So the what Extinction Rebellion want to do is they want to say, look to the government, we've got this task. We need to get to carbon neutral by 2025 or, or whatever that ends up being when the, the demands you know, when the, when the government um, sort of agrees, I suspect, you know, that they will say to the Citizens' Assembly, look, we need you to get on the case here. We'll provide you with the, you know, the money because it does they do cost some money because you have to, basically people have to take perhaps time off work yeah. or perhaps they just do it at weekends, but they ha there has to be some sort of way of, has to be funded. And you also have to find a venue for all these people, whatever they are, you know, they don't just happen out of the blue. But if they can be given that legitimacy and they can be given the, um, the actual power to make a decision that the government abides by, it's actually a really elegant solution to really complicated problems. And I think it was really interesting. There was a kind of near miss recently. Uh, I think it was Rory Stewart, one of the Tory leadership candidates. He was advocating for a citizens assembly to kind of try and break the deadlock on Brexit. And I guess whatever opinions you have on it, I thought that was really clever. He didn't get very far in the whole thing. But actually, citizens' assemblies are a really good idea, and they're not just a completely new idea. There are actually quite a lot of systems already and have used them, and they've made good decisions, and they've actually made powerful, democratic, and just decisions as well. So I'm, I'm to me, that is a really amazing. Um, I don't know. It's a hopeful. It's a hopeful thing, and I think if we can get that. It would be it would be absolutely incredible, and and I believe it would, you know. I suppose one of the criticisms that I hear, you know, sometimes is, "Oh, Extinction Rebellion doesn't doesn't propose any solutions," mm -hmm. and we're like, "Nah, don't worry. The solutions are out there already. There's more than enough scientists, engineers, psychologists, sociologists, economists who have the models and understanding, and they've you know got some expertise in what to do. It's the will that is lacking." And actually, the solutions just need to be brought together, coordinated in a just way to share the to share the impact of those and actually get get these things happening. So for me, it's a it's a very, very neat. And it also means what's really cool is that in Extinction Rebellion, we don't get bogged down in debates about solutions Oh, you know, should we have nuclear power? You know, we all probably have opinions on that. But actually, it's like, let's listen to the experts who've got the opinions on it. And that for me means gives us a liberation we're a bit freer to be able to just press for this the solution uh, as in the kind of the gateway to the solution yeah. and as soon as we get to that gateway we let we let them go and i heard this another analogy just to just to maybe make it even clearer i've not been very clear is you know i suppose there's this idea that we're flying in a plane you know we're kind of going towards this massive cliff the pilots are just either asleep 
drunk, bickering, whatever you want. And, you know, the, the people in the plane are like, we need to take the controls here. Um, and they break into the into the to the to the cabin and the, the pilots are doing whatever and we're like let's get the, let's get the, we need but actually we're not saying we're going to take control of the plane we're saying let's find some pilots who actually can out of it you know and get this done so that for me is a really you know kind of neat way of saying you know this is not this is not crazy talk this is all actually very sensible it's not actually that 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 crazy i think it's just actually yeah very sensible simply sorry gary got carried on too long <laughs> that's fine and i think that was something that um sam talked about as well that you're you know extinction rebellion isn't about telling you how to fix it mm. extinction rebellion is about saying to governments and mm. that you're the ones in charge you're the ones yeah, with access to the job. exports yeah we're not going to tell you how to fix it. We're just yeah. saying to you, fix it. Yeah, yeah. Do something about it. Yeah. And get the you, people to decide get... how to do it fairly. And I mean, the Citizens' Assembly, I mean, I can... <clears throat> Excuse me. I can see why they aren't being adopted for me by politicians mm. who do have vested interests yeah. because they lose control there. Mm. And But then that's to me, sounds very exactly what democracy should be well i think it's really interesting i mean there is that there is that sort of terrifying prospect we could create a citizens assembly um or citizens assembly could get created um and it just says oh no it's fine on balance the public decide to just crack on you know and that's why but if the public are informed i believe that's very much less likely the next terrifying idea is that they'd be like oh well let's just you know do this that or the other but in fact it needs to be fair it needs to be just but i suppose when I think of, uh, you know, in juries, you know, you have all these cross-section of people involved in juries um, and people might kind of go, oh, you know, we need really clever people to decide about, you know, whether people are guilty or innocent. But it doesn't like that because when people, and and a normal average citizen has got this very profound, weighty question as to this person's liberty in their hands, people step up to the plate with their best, best thinking, their best knowledge, the best engagement and you know we hope juries make good decisions that's kind of like why it's like that and i think that's what's amazing about these citizens assemblies is that we are investing a huge amount of hope into the fact that they will be just yeah. they will be sensible they will be fair they will be clear and it rests upon proper information and proper uh, proper um public knowledge and we can do a huge amount of getting the public informed before those citizens assemblies even start and I think that sort of basic literacy in the situation is really, really important because, again, this is the most important issue facing our our, our species, our 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 you know history, oh, and just the planet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well. yeah, fundamentally. And I think, like you said, though, we're not you know you're not talking about just taking you know twenty random people and putting them in a room and saying mm. figure out what to do about that. You're mm. talking about taking these people and then presenting them yeah with what they need to know putting the right putting the experts in front of them yeah. putting the people to tell them and then to make an informed decision yeah. based on what they've heard like you people said, say who did how do you choose the experts who chooses the experts how you know and, and actually that's a, another really important yes, thing is that course. the experts you get groups of experts to select the experts you know so it's not just done you don't just go oh we like to look at that guy let's listen to him you know so it's like a peer the peers of these let's say a climate scientist you know in a certain area would be like oh, we you know we want this guy to speak so i think that's again there's lots of ways that you you know people 
you know, it's built in this, this kind of very, and again, it's, it's just very, very clever. And the more I learn about it, and I can't claim to be an expert about it, you know, I've learned as much as I can in a short time. Uh, I'd like to learn more. And I think, you know, I really encourage people because it is really clever, especially when it sits in contrast to the shenanigans, you know, and it's this idea, I suppose, again, of collaboration. I think that's also really important to bring out is that, our democracy is adversarial, uh, which means, you know, if black and white and white is black, you know, it gets kind of, you have to argue against yeah. it, even if it's a sensible position. And that is a very, very dangerous uh, situation when you've got really difficult problems. So it encourages, or it kind of steps aside, steps outside of that paradigm and gets people to collaborate. And in fact, again, we are capable of adversarial behaviours. Individuals can, of course, be adversarial. People kind of think that's one of the highest qualities or one of the, you know, dog-eat-dog -dog kind of style things. But actually, human beings are capable of incredible collaboration. That's arguably one of the ways that we've become so dominant on this earth because we are super good at collaborating. And in fact, when, you know, our back's against the wall, we do create communities, connections, and we do collaborate and uh, again, I, I, that's why I'm a massive advocate of, of it. And I think I'm really hopeful that, that this could be a way out of this very difficult situation that we're in. So one of the key things is getting the message out to people, mm. you know, so they understand the mm. situation, they know what's going on. And I think one of, from a personal point of view, one of the most sort of hopeful things for me is mm. the young people, yeah. particularly the school, you know, with yeah, the, yeah. the school strikes, obviously, you, and you mentioned, mentioned earlier Greta yeah. Thunberg, who, you know, has created this incredible yeah. movement alongside at the same time you know yeah, yeah. things have gone from being you know one girl sitting outside yeah. in the swedish parliament yeah. to speaking in front of millions of people yeah, yeah. in that's new york mad, isn't it? but these it's great that these kids seem to be understanding like you say understanding it mm. finding out what's going on and obviously yeah. because for them this you know as you say it's happening now in parts yeah. of the world it's already it will dominate badly, their lives. But it's their it? entire yeah. futures and it's their yeah. children's yeah, yeah. futures. And I think that's very easy. And I think you said it's something you have to battle against. It's very easy to be very negative mm. about climate change. Yeah. Because obviously a lot of the reports are extremely bleak mm. about the amount, the scale of what has to happen or yeah. what needs to happen. Yeah. That it, it is easy to look at that and go... We've, we've screwed the pooch already. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. missed our chance. But seeing these youngsters come out, and hopefully they can keep going because some of them are being attacked in horror. I mean, some of the stuff that's thrown at, yeah, yeah. at Greta Thunberg from people yeah. like Piers Morgan and that um, idiot from UKIP mm. about is, is appalling. You know, the comments made about her autism, her yeah, being yeah. controlled. And, but in, in the same as in a more general scale, just the sort of criticism being aimed at children for, yeah, yeah. for taking time at school and even teachers, you know, I've mm. seen people claiming they're being, 
these kids are being indoctrinated by yeah, teachers yeah. to believe this. But they've kept going. Mm. I mean, in, in just before the Extinction Rebellion yeah. recently, there was another big, yeah, yeah. you know, strike. It's really heartening, strike. isn't it? I think that, you know, the... And I think young people have got this incredible role to play and I think they can do so much more. I think they will do so much more because I think, again, you know, some adults be like, oh, yeah, you know, how does this affect me? You know, what's it going to be? But I think these young people, once the penny drops, again, it's going to like, it's not going to drop, it's going to like clang, it's going to like land, bang. You know, they're going to be, of course, there's, you know, there's so many more people to be engaged. You know, young people are by far not a homogenous group. They don't all care about the environment no. and their future yet. But when they do, again, there's going to be this, this, you know, this scandal is going to explode in their world. They are going to be furious. They're going to be absolutely unjustly outraged. And young people um, are going to be able to say with some um justification i suspect you know what were you thinking what were you doing and they're gonna have they're gonna be angry yeah and and i suppose my one of my senses is that you know we're better off getting this started now because if we wait for a few more years and you're going to get these 16 year old young you know these people are young now for you know whatever how old they are now once they get to be a bit older and there's still nothing has happened it's going to go off you know there's going to be massive massive you know problems um and well i think there's going to be a massive organization and there's going to be incredible amount of energy to create changes and that could be in the form of civil disobedience at first and it's going to be difficult for, for authorities to handle so i sort of think they should have an eye strategically they should be thinking actually you know we need to get started on this now there's you know we've got to take our medicine otherwise we're going to end up you know having to take it worse later on and i think that's a fascinating kind of thinking I, I i mean that's my own kind of thoughts on it but i suppose maybe other people are thinking like that as well yes yeah, it's, it's like you say it's definitely because they certainly seem more engaged about it mm. um obviously there'll be ones you know will drop away and one of the mm. biggest problems and i talked about this before obviously is it is a huge issue mm. it's a massive issue but the problem is is you've got is trying to engage people when the you know we're talking about like you said the people that are going to be affected most mm. are the people at the lower ends of society yeah, yeah. who are quite frankly from are spending 99 percent of the time mm. just thinking about how to make sure they've Absolutely. still got food at the end of the that's month that's the injustice here right yeah. you know this is the this is what you know you can be motivated by self-interest you can be motivated by all sorts of things but actually there is a there's a burning injustice. There's an injustice, and it's happening. It's at, it's at a global scale. The fact that the poorest people around the world, the people who just didn't make this problem, who are suffering already, you know. So we don't tend to care that much about them because they look different than you and I. They are living in a part of the world that's far away from here, and their problems, you know, we can uh, you know can look at them and go, yeah, that's nothing to do with us. Perhaps we even might think it's their fault. Um, but actually, it's wrong. You know, this is happening. It's our fault. It's our habits, our lifestyles that are causing their lives to be miserable. And then you're going to start to bring that onto our shores. You know, when when there's not enough food and water to, to sustain people all around the world, there are going to be migrations, there are going to be tensions, there are going to be wars. It's going to bring this to our shores. And we're going to see 
we're going to have big questions to ask about what sort of society we want to live in you know where does our food come from what do we do if you know if we are if we are good people which you know we think we are what what is the right what is a just way of dealing with this and then you're going to have all these pressures on these groups you know you're going to have black and ethnic minority communities are going to start to struggle you're going to have poor white communities going to start to struggle you're going to have the rights that have been you know hard won lgbtqi uh, rights you're going to have disability rights you're going to have all sorts of problems for the most vulnerable people and there's you know again there's this injustice there and we ha i just i can't bear to just watch it unfold and i think that's to me again what makes this so compelling you know there's there's all sorts of reasons why it affects us but it's also got a deep down ask you know do we believe in justice do we you know want a world that we can be kind of proud of i think deep down we all want that but then we have to start to ask ourselves uh you know what what does that mean and what does that mean what does that mean ask of me and I think that's a, that's a hard question. There's no doubt. And of course, a lot of people, we are very good as human beings are swerving away from yeah. those sorts of questions. But I think we are in these times, probably very similarly to in the build up to maybe it was like this before the Second World War. You know, there was this massive threat. People were searching themselves, you know, who is going to tackle Adolf Hitler and the Nazis? Who is going to go out there? And, you know, end up they they had to risk their lives, and they had to. Um, there were people who knew they they weren't going to come back, and yet they stepped up out of a sense of responsibility, a sense of duty, and I think we're going to have to start to see it in this way. I believe for me, I am motivated by a sense of responsibility and a sense of duty. It's like that 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 classic, you know, if not me, who? Yeah. And if not now, when? You know, this is it we're getting to that point now you're going to have to decide people are going to have to say am i going to be involved here or am i just going to watch it am i going to be involved and just or am i going to just you know cry in my cups when it all goes wrong it's a matter of a bit of imagination and a matter of some some soul searching and i think that's uh that's just the way you know that's a tough situation to be in but i think that's important to, to recognise that I think this is at the end of the day that sort of quality of this of this question yeah. and I think as well and there are so many ways you can do something you don't you know it's you don't have to be going mm. and sitting on a road in London yeah even if it's just you know emailing your mm. local member yeah. of parliament your potential you know in the run up to the election mm. finding out where where your candidates stand on yeah. this issue, what they plan to do about yeah. it, what's in the manifestos. Mm. You know, we know not obviously not everybody can go and down. Yeah. Not everyone can get two yeah. weeks out or yeah, even yeah. a few days out of mm. work. You know, commitments, family, but you can like say you can message your MP. You can message your MP. You can even as little as trying to engage somebody who isn't talking about it or isn't mm. paying attention to the evidence or he's even dismissive or doubtful mm. of it and an interesting thing that i've heard people because obviously again we hear even now still some people that are dubious of the claims mm. they think they're over exaggerated but and i think sam also mentioned this even if and this is a mining it's this isn't what's going to happen because the experts have studied this years, but mm. even if it turned out in 50 years that 
climate change wasn't anywhere near as disastrous as mm. we thought it was going to be. What's the worst that can happen? We still end up with a better planet. Yeah, I think that's so, yeah, I think that's really important, you know. And I, I suppose it's we have to be careful because I think the science is unequivocal. I think the 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 the, the, the error, I suppose, where it will come in is it's unpredictable as to what will happen when we reach these tipping points yes. and when these tipping points will arrive. And I think you, you know, of course you recognise that. But I think what is really really critical that you you kind of alluded to is that. They has an extinction vein again needs to really explain this and push it. We do as best as we can, but of course the media and, and, and with some suffocation tend to focus on the disruption and the and the protest. So I think that one of the things that we have to um, one of the things that people perhaps don't see about extinction vein, they tend to focus on the the disruptive actions or the or the disobedience is extinction rebellion also you know, really pushing on this idea of a regenerative culture. And this is something that is, again, is fantastically exciting uh, because I think a lot of people know there's something kind of wrong in our society, in our system. You know, people are disconnected, perhaps from themselves even. People are disconnected from their communities, from their family members. You know, we have these kind of thin connections with the social media, perhaps. We are mentally unhealthy as a community. You know, we have physical ill health. Um, we have, you know absolutely tragic um, issues you know, homeless people poverty in work poverty you know loneliness um, I can kind of go on and disconnection from nature all these things um, actually Extinction Rebellion is trying to model and live in this way where we can live with greater connection with individuals where we can um, have communities that are inclusive that are not you know, not totally all about this dog-eat-dog, relentless pressure. And the pressure exists no matter what level of society you're in, it seems, to some degree. Although some people probably don't feel any pressure. But, you know, there are some very rich people who are living under very high-pressure situations. There's some very, very poor people who are also under great pressure. Although it's a different quality, I suspect. But, you know, the regenerative culture is about trying to actually live in a more loving, compassionate um, connected communities create these communities that can survive um, better when situation gets perhaps more difficult if we aren't successful in completely um, you know stopping this which I don't think we can be you know there are changes on the way they're baked in and we're going to have some big big changes but this regenerative culture is about creating resilient communities but actually happy healthy nice places to live uh, where people can actually feel human again rather than just being cogs in a machine or you know tiny inconsequential beings watching these you know cogs just grind up the earth grind up their friends and family even perhaps in this in this in this system so for me there's a really interesting kind of area there and there's a whole economic side to this as well you know I suppose some people um, sort of assume perhaps that Extinction Rebellion or that maybe the Extinction Rebellion members are anti-capitalist and perhaps some of them are but I think what's there's a really interesting narrative there because actually there's lots and lots of different economic systems that are uh, not this you know rampant unfettered free market um, neoliberal capitalism that we've got that is basically grinding society up and destroying our world and our planet and you know consuming our futures and turning into money there are other alternative systems that look something similar to what we're doing perhaps but actually are operating in a very different way in a regenerative way you know where the money is being used 
to, to create a future and invested in the future in a very different way than what it is right now. So I think there's this huge uh, area that we have to you know, explain and also people have to learn about as well. You know, I recommend there's a book called uh, Donut Economics. It's, I've read it recently by Kate Raworth and she explains these you know, alternative economic models um, because I suppose a lot of people think there is only one economic model and that's the one we're in now. Yeah. We've got to somehow you know, make that work when it manifestly is, is, is killing us. So there's a huge amount of work there to, to sort of to demonstrate and also to live ourselves. We're brought up in this life, you know, highly pressurized, individualized life. We can almost not imagine of another way around it. Yet, actually, you know, there are communities around the world where this is a, a, a normal way of life. Um, it's different, very different from us. You know, they probably don't have uh, some of the things that we think are absolutely critical. Yet they live really happily. Um, and I'm hoping that we can be working towards that at the same time as we are changing you know getting the government to act we also need to be modeling this this alternative as well no and that's going to be difficult changing a mindset is yeah very difficult <laughs> but then also when you do that you know it's, it's a bit easier when people see that the situation as yes. it is does not have to be like this at the minute i suppose a lot of people just kind of go yeah that's just the way it is but it doesn't have to be like that. I do not believe it has to be like that. And there are alternatives. They are different. Um, they're going to take some some changes. But once people realise, you know, their imaginations, I suppose, are opened up and their eyes opened up, that there are alternatives. I think that's, to me, going to be a huge step as well. Because at the minute, of course, they'll be like, why should we change? What do we change to? There's no alternative. And in fact, that's not true. Excellent. Uh, we're going to have to um, wrap things up soon. Um, obviously, we we could talk sort of all night about yeah, what needs like, to happen, yeah, yeah. the things that could happen. But I wanted to talk, obviously, about before you mm. became a part of Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Prior to that, obviously, you were sort of previously known for your, your um, Olympic yeah. success. Yeah. And I wondered what, obviously, you won the, the London yeah. 2012, which is obviously even more mm. amazing. So I just wondered what that was like, taking part in, you know, yeah. what became a, a almost celebration of Britain that yeah. year. Oh man, I mean, it was, it was incredible. Um, you know, I, I was 33 when I won the Olympics um, and I'd been canoeing, I suppose, you know, pretty seriously. I mean, canoeing being uh, the central part of my life since I was about 13. So I'd started canoeing when I was about 10 or 11 in the Scouts, um, you know, kind of joined a local club when I was kind of 12 ish you know I'd, I'd sort of said to myself this is what I want to do yeah. by the time I was 13 I was like this is what I want to do I couldn't train of course as seriously as I could when I was a bit older but you know that was it was a kind of that was a driving force in my life and then you know I had you know a career as an individual athlete um, up to the age of about 22 23 years old wasn't really doing what I wanted to I was hoping to be an Olympic champion and I was not even anywhere near going to Olympics then I switched to double canoes and and with, with my crewmate Tim, you know, came across and developed this model of, of training and competing that was actually really powerful and really effective. Um, we had some massive ups and downs, but by the time we got to London, um, you know, we had a really good idea of what what we were about as individuals, as athletes, but also as, 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 as human beings, what we wanted to do, the way we wanted to live our lives, the kind of the way we wanted to, to be and what the sort of per, the people we wanted to demonstrate and then the sort of ways of being that we wanted to demonstrate. So for us, London was this opportunity to go out and do what, you know, do our masterpiece as such, you know, kind of like 
do this, you know, create this this thing. And we spent a lot of time kind of working on the recipe, I suppose. I'm trying to think of some sort of bake-off parallels. But, you know, <laughs> we spent a lot of time, you know, working on it. And at the end of the day, you know, the London Games is a huge step into the unknown. You know, no one had ever raced in front of, you know, a home Olympic crowd. You know, there were 12,500 people in that stadium, you know, millions of people watching what turned out to be a, you know, an incredible day. Um, and we were just like, right, we've made all our best guesses as to the preparation. That's what it is at the end of the day. No one can tell you the success formula for winning the Olympics. You can just make a best guess, hope your guess is good, commit to it and, and go out and do it. And, you know, we raced absolutely to our highest level. You know, I suppose I consider that we delivered something about 98% of our, our best ability on that day. Um, and other crews probably were a little bit, there probably were one or two crews who thought they were faster than us with some justification, but they didn't perform to the level that they could have. We actually spent a lot of time working with a psychologist, working on our dynamics as a, as a crew with our coach, you know, meticulously deconstructing our sport, reconstructing it and creating a sort of deliberate practice of, of, of canoe slalom uh, sounds a bit grand but you know we kind of understood it at a very deep level because by that time like I said I've been doing it for about 20 years and you know we we just did this run in London which was like wow that was a good run but you don't know in my sport whether it's good enough until everyone else has tried to beat it and so you know the other guys one by one came and tried to try to take our t- take our time down but they didn't um, and we were like well, we've just won the Olympics. Um, yeah. And it was like, you know, moment, that moment our lives changed, you know, absolutely that, you know, we are the same people, I'm the same person, but everything else is different. You know, everyone looks at you as an Olympic champion, you know, and, and I suppose people have some expectations of, you know, your qualities and characteristics as a, an Olympic champion, who, what sort of person you might be. And, and I think that is kind of quite positive in some ways, you know, it means, and in some ways it's justified, but in other ways, you know, you've got to explain to people, man, I'm just a human being. I was extremely lucky to grow up, uh, you know, I grew up in Bedford and there was an amazing scout group there with some amazing leaders. Then I joined an amazing club and there were amazing volunteers who coached me and helped me and ran the races that I went to. And then I met some amazing um, coaches as I got older, some people who helped me to learn and met some amazing people who, who helped me to get to where I was, dis, you know, I work ridiculously hard. I, I can absolutely, that's my main talent. Um, worked very, very hard, had some amazing luck, good fortune, had some bad, bad times as well. You know, but the very fact just to have London Olympics in your home, in your home country at that time when we were good, at the time when we had figured things out a bit um, and the fact that we could do that good run of the day you know, all these massive chain of events line up to, for something mm. like that to happen. And I consider myself exceptionally fortunate. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why I also consider it my duty in a way to be outspoken on something like this, you know, like uh, the environmental crisis, because actually, you know, this, this, um, I, I describe, you know, as a platform. Yeah, I've been something, given yeah. something of a platform here, you know, and it's not me made i didn't make this platform by some of my own effort but actually it's the public creates this platform they you know if people didn't like the olympics there'd be no platform if people didn't think a gold medal in the olympics was worth anything there'd be no platform but i've got i've got this position where people think that 
you know, I might be a good person and I might be an interesting person to listen to. And I think it's a responsibility not to use that for self-aggrandizement and enrichment. It's actually useful to use that as uh, something important to give back into the community. Um, so I kind of feel really uh, strongly that I should do that. So thank you there to Etienne Stott for taking time out to chat with us there. It was great talking to Etienne about all the work he's been involved with with Extinction Rebellion, the great things going on there, the importance of what they're doing, and, you know, why this is such a massive campaign. And if you want to know more about them, having listened to that, and you don't know, obviously, you know, you've probably seen a lot in the press. You may have, you know, some mixed viewpoints on what they're up to, what's going on, but you can find out more about them. If you check them out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash XRNottem, that's X-R-N-O-T-T-M, and that's for Extinction Rebellion Nottingham, and they've always got loads of events going on. As I said at the beginning of the show, we uh, had Extinction Rebellion Nottingham's Sam Harris on a few weeks back, and you can find that on the website ngdigital.podbean.com or whichever you know uh, podcast app you're using, if you've not already checked it out. And if you want to keep in on all the podcasts we have going, don't forget you can subscribe uh, to the show to make sure you get new episodes first. And talking of which, next week's episode will feature uh, Nottingham author Mike Brooks. Uh, Mike's the writer of the Keiko Trilogy. He also writes uh, for Games Workshop. He's done quite a lot of writing for them. And he's also got a new trilogy that he's working on at the moment that he's... Uh, talks about in the episode so that was great to chat to i've known mike quite a long time from his days in music so it was good to sit down and have a chat with mike and we talked about his books and also about some of the sort of uh, reaction he's had to some of his uh, work particularly with regards to games workshop Uh, so that's an excellent chat that's next week we've got some more shows that we're lining up to record Uh, Keep an eye out on our Facebook page if you want to know more about what we've got coming up. That's facebook.com forward slash ngdigital and follow us on Twitter at ngdigitaluk and then you'll know what shows are coming up as soon as they're announced, the guests. So thanks again for listening. Thanks once again, of course, to Sobar for um, allowing us to record there as ever. And, you know, a great place. Hope you check them out on Friar Lane supported by Double Impact Recovery. So a great uh, venue there, well worth checking out. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week, and that's all for now.